Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I've been talking about this interview all day. Matt Harvey is his name. He's an ace journalist for Tribe. Does some stuff. With- Actually, you were an intern at The Reader last year, weren't you, Matt? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh, well, in, uh, in 2018. Summer of 2018 was when I interned at The Reader, yeah. Yeah. Um, but since then, I started doing freelance with him. So, uh, yeah. And uh, and he his coverage was exemplary. He was uh, out in the streets uh, covering the protests uh, uh, over Memorial Day weekend, the 30th and 31st, the Saturday and the Sunday and the Monday. And I just thought it would be a great idea if he came on the show and just took us through it A to Z. I'm also going to say this up front. We'll get get rid. Well, we'll talk a little bit about yourself before we do. I was about to say uh, he's a. Uh, a great uh, high school basketball player, Whitney Young, but I promised I would discipline myself and not discuss the Bulls. Uh, <laughs> although it's on the tip of both of our tongues. We'll try not to. Try not to. Man, can you hire a new coach, fellas? Um, Matt, before we uh, talk about what went down in Chicago on the 30th and the 31st, why don't you talk a little bit about your background? You grew up in Chicago. Where did you grow up and uh, how would you get into journalism, that kind of thing? Um, yeah, I grew up in Uptown on the north side. I went to school over there, uh, lived in the same apartment building on Lakeside, 920 West Lakeside for the first 18 years of my life. Uh, I was even born at White Hospital right there by the, by Lakeshore. So yeah, I grew up over there, went to Stewart School, it's now shuttered and became Stewart School of Alps. Um, went to high school at Whitney Young, but a uh, misconception a lot of people make because they see me and they realize I'm six six. When I tell them I played basketball, they assume I was recruited to Whitney Young, but I was not. I uh, never even played um, basketball for my elementary school team, and uh, so yeah, went to Whitney Young for this is all academics, and uh, that was where I got into journalism. Um, it was uh, teachers, honestly. My English teachers, uh, my sophomore and junior years of high school, and then an ethnic studies teacher I had in my senior year. Mm-hmm. Those three classroom experiences, uh, really learning my skill at writing, honing my, my talent for writing, and getting an understanding of uh, my interest in, in investigative work. Um, and that was what uh, led into journalism. I ended up. Uh, choosing journalism as a major when I first went away to college in 2016. Uh, and uh, yeah. let's give a shout out to those teachers. Name, give, give them some love. Okay. Yes, that, yeah. Uh, Jay Rehack was uh, the first, my sophomore uh, English teacher. Uh, he was the first one who really told me that uh, he felt like my writing was good enough to do this professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a teacher my junior year of. Uh, English class, uh, Joseph Scotis, and he actually failed his class. I failed his English class, but the things that I learned in that class, honestly, have like are things that I apply daily when uh, working as a journalist. Um, and uh, the final teacher was Miss Washington, Elena Washington. Uh, she was my U.S. history teacher in junior, and then in senior year, she became my ethnic studies teacher and we did projects in that class that just really forced me to apply those the talent for writing and to gain a skill for researching and uh, reporting and it was a case study project that I did I ended up going like 10 pages over the requirement and from then on I think that was when I was like okay I'm, I'm gonna really try and do journalism like this is what I want to do Matt, I cannot let this moment yeah. pass. Uh, it's it's like it would be burying the lead, uh, which is a sin in journalism. You flunked yeah. your journalism. You're a working journalist, uh, but you flunked the cor- one of the courses 
a English course. I've heard it, I've, I've failed an English course, and I'm a writer. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. It's it's funny to, to think about it now, but I mean, at that point, I had no idea that I was going to be a writer. Um, I was just so taxed from uh, playing basketball. I was, you know, so much of my time was going to the gym early in the morning and late at night, living so far away. It was like uh, I had to give myself an hour to get to 6 a.m. practice. So that meant I was waking up at like 4, 4.30 a.m. a lot of the times to wow. get to practice for 6 a.m. at Whitney Young. And, and then I would stay late till like 8, 9 o'clock around when I'd get home. So, yeah, it was a, it was a tough, uh, tough time. And as a result, yeah, I, fa- I failed that class. Um, I would like, I would always try to cram for his test and, he was a notoriously hard teacher, and I just thought, I, I guess I thought I was smart enough to, you know, finesse my way out of it, but that, uh, yeah, I ended up having to take all my English course to get that credit back. Well, let, let me just say this uh, before we move on. 6 a.m. practice? Yeah. That's utterly insane. I'm just throwing that out yeah. there. <laughs> Whitney Young High School did not win or lose one game. Because some crazy coach had those kids coming in at six in the morning. That's just me, Matt. Yeah. I just think that's crazy. Particularly high school kids, like their whole biorhythms. Yeah. You're not on a six a.m. practice biorhythm thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it was tough. Yeah, it was it was tough, but it was a adjustment that I was uh, willing to make at the time, and I mean, it paid off. Honestly, I became better at basketball, better than I'd ever uh, been. Um, I definitely gained skills during that time, so I definitely credit my coaches. Uh, one of the main coaches there who worked with me, who I feel like really helped me improve my game, was uh, Coach Brandon uh, Brandon Bright. He was my he was my freshman year coach. I was on the freshman team, and he kind of he remained like he coached throughout all of my years uh, years there. I'm not sure if he still does, but uh, him, Coach Snyder, uh, was a great you know a great influence on me. And, uh, you know, Coach Slaughter was, he, he had bigger fish to fry with <laughs> Julio Okafor and, yeah. uh, you know, other guys there that, that had, had pro aspirations. Yeah. But, yeah. All right. So you had pro mm-hmm. aspirations, but professional journalism aspirations, uh, not professional exactly. basketball aspirations. So, all right, let's make this transition before I go even further in a basketball discussion, which I promised <laughs> I wouldn't do. Uh, although I stand by what I said, six o'clock practices are absurd. It's hard. It's hard to resist. Yeah. I, was hard to resist. There was a coach at uh, Temple. Blanking on his name, I think uh, John Cheney was his name back in the '90s and the O's. Who loved six, like eight, having a. I read about these practices. I'm like, whose brain is up? But that's my bias. All right, let me focus yeah. on what went down uh, Saturday. So I guess it begins Saturday, May 30th, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, talk about uh, what what you saw, Matt, uh, at the yeah. early stages. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll begin. I was, uh, this is my second day of working at the tribe. Um, and we were, you know, we had to hop on it covering these, uh, protests. So I ended up going to the Metropolitan Correctional Center. That's where it started at, uh, be an organization, uh, Back Lives Matter and, uh, a few other collaborative organizations. I'm blanking on the names of them right now, but. They uh, organized uh, a march that started at the Metropolitan Correctional Center and ended up at Daly Plaza, uh, where there was a gathering of over, I'd say, 4,000 early on. Um, so, yeah, the numbers just continued to grow throughout the night. I'd say they peaked at around four or 5,000. I, I mean, yeah, it was it was insane at Daly Plaza. Um but I started there. Uh, it started off just loud, just noisy out there. Um, cars honking. People, there were people walking around with horns, beating drums. Uh, and of course, there were chants, protests, protesters chanting, say her name, say his name, you know, um, no justice, no peace, these things. And that goes on for, I'd say, about um, a good 30 minutes to an hour when uh, protesters start to march towards uh, Wacken and Wabash 
uh, the bridge right there to go over to uh, Trump Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, so at Trump Tower, it was basically barricaded by police officers. They that, that was something that they seemed to have identified early on as a, an obvious target that they would have to defend. And that ended up being something that was a trend throughout the whole weekend. Um, but this was before all the bridges were lifted. This is uh, pretty early on in the day. The sun is still up, I'd say about 4 p.m. And when things really got contentious between protesters and police was around this time. When they attempted to go to the Trump Tower and police from the other side of the bridge on Wabash, they were basically like on Wacker Drive blocking off protesters from from going back. You know, they, they basically were trapped on the bridge. Protesters were basically trapped on the bridge because the police wouldn't let them go past Trump Tower and they wouldn't let them go back across towards Wacker. And I think this this moment of tension only built. It, 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 everything piled up from there. Um, right after that was when uh, protesters ended up, you know, they advancing forward and ended up off the bridge. But after that was when uh, there was a paddy wagon that was um, parked uh, uh, on that side of the street on Wacker that almost ended up getting tilted over uh, by protesters. Um, this was around the time where the protests started to move towards Michigan Avenue. There was just this super clear attempt of the police to to prevent protesters from making it to Michigan Avenue, and you know the reason seeming seemingly was that it was to prevent looting, to stop any possibility of looting, um, or to just give uh, businesses time to board up their windows. Um, but the only thing they couldn't block off was Lakeshore Drive. There was no way for the police to really block off Lakeshore Drive, so protesters walked all the way through Lakeshore Drive uh, from Randolph. Um, to to all the way over to Michigan Avenue, um, and that was it was like a huge act. Like it was interesting just being there and witnessing this crowd of a few thousand people all just migrating uh, up Michigan up to you know Lakeshore Drive, and yeah, we ended up on the avenue, and that was when the looting broke out. Um, I'd say this was around five thirty. Uh, six was when the first stores started getting hit, um, and it just escalated from there like at it exponentially. It was it was crazy to see, honestly. Um, people breaking in Neiman, Neiman Marcus and and Macy's and uh, Nike Town and all these different places. And um, and the most interesting thing to me, just being there, uh, looking at it, was that. The police weren't trying to stop the looters. That was that that stood out to me throughout the whole, entire night. Honestly, until the curfew went into effect, there was really no police effort to try and stop the looting. Um, and instead, they were more busy being um, like combative with protesters who were who most of them were just chanting and marching. Uh, those seem to be where the police had, had all their focus at. Um, there were obviously other things going on besides looting, besides the protesting. There was uh, cars being set ablaze, police cars, um, flags being burnt here and there. It was it was a lot going on for the rest of the night, and and so I ended up in the thick of that for basically the entire night. Well, uh, until I'm, about ten thirty. Uh, I'll I'll lead you uh, further on to the night. I just want to say this: you're the second person that's recounted that scene on the Wabash Bridge. I just had a conversation with Troy Laravier, and I'll uh, alert listeners who are listening to Matt's uh, podcast. If you want to hear Troy's account, uh, you could just go back and listen to the show with Troy that I just dropped. Uh, right before I started this interview with, or Dennis dropped it, and we, right before we yeah. started the interview with Matt. But Troy, uh, pre, uh, president of the Chicago Principal Association, describes, uh, Matt, exactly what you said. He was on that bridge, uh, and he got caught uh, 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 
like the in the the, the police were on one side. They just blocked off access yeah. and they just started arresting people. And he got yeah. thrown in jail for twelve hours. My point is, it seemed like this is the part that I'm scratching my head over. They were determined. You talk about what they were protecting and not protecting. It seemed like they were determined to protect Trump Tower from yeah. having. To, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, what do you guys care about yeah. Trump Tower? <laughs> Sorry, that's it my was, side. It was, yeah, that was definitely, I mean, it was obvious throughout the night. And honestly, the next day when I went back out there Sunday, that was almost the only place where there was a, such a huge police presence. Um, the the block on, um, I want to say it's Kinsey, leading up to Trump Tower was completely swarming with police officers, police cars. Uh, blocking the street, pack, like packing the entire street. Um, police officers uh, in riot gear lined up the stairs. Over, like it was, it was a lot, and it was very clearly an attempt to protect Trump Tower. And it started from from yeah, then that moment on that bridge, um, and it, it was a the central place where a lot of people got arrested. It was where a lot of uh, things like tear gas, rubber bullets were being used over there um and i think that even though protesters even when protesters tried to go around uh, once they got to michigan avenue and tried to you know basically get to trump tower from the other side uh it was once again blocked off by police uh and, and it was clear very clear that that was like the largest presence throughout either of those days of protest now, uh, as you were saying earlier, you're a tall man. You're about six six. Uh, so as yeah, you, you're, yeah. uh, you must stand out. Did you have identification around your neck saying that you were a Chicago journalist? So no. Uh, this is my second day at the tribe. I haven't gotten. I haven't even been on board yet. Um, I got hired literally two days ago. Um, so I I have no like uh, real indicator that I'm a journalist on the job right now. Um, so I'm just out there. Uh, I'm, I'm stopping it. Only, the only way you would ever be able to tell is if you were one of the people that I stopped and talked to, uh, for, for, you know, quote for the story I was working on. Um, but yeah, I did end up getting an encounter with the police when I was, it was actually later on in the night. And this is when police really became, uh, hyper aggressive. Was when the pro the the I'm sorry the curfew was put into effect, um, and at this point it's I want to say about nine thirty, so a little bit past the curfew, maybe between nine thirty and ten, and I'm on my way back to the car, and there's only way one way back now. At this point, the bridge is all lifted, and I am parked at Northwestern Medicine, at Northwestern Medical Center, and. I'm standing, me me and uh, my girlfriend was out there helping me report live and my older brother. And we were walking from uh, Daily Plaza now. We were still, we were back in that area around Daily Plaza. At this point, we walked the entirety of the downtown area. Um, and so I need, to, I need to get back. And uh, on my way back, I was stopped by uh, maybe a group of three or four police officers and I'm carrying this bag, this white plastic bag, a CVS bag. Uh, I, I mean, mind you, I just walked past a CVS that's been looted, but this is never, near, neither here nor there. This is a bag that I had from earlier on in the day because it had two water bottles in it, two spare water bottles, and then my own uh, Camelback bottle filled with water. So I'm carrying this plastic bag on my way to the car. And they stopped me. They, they, they're shouting. They, they, you know, stop, put that down, put that down. And I'm holding it like this is my bag, like this is mine. Um, and at that point, like one of them, like he, well, he points his his club at me, like he's, uh, I mean, he threatens me to to arrest me for looting if I don't drop the bag. And uh, so I had to drop that bag, and now I'm out of a thirty-two dollar bottle that I, you know, spent my money on, and a couple water bottles that I had gotten throughout the night. And so, yeah, I, uh, was, that was the encounter that I had and that was my, on my way out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spent the whole day and, you know, been safe, but that was, uh, 
Did, did you tell the police officer that you were a working journalist or you just dropped the bag? Um, I mean, I didn't, I honestly, I didn't even think to state that because the, the first thing they said to me was that they would arrest me for looting. Wow. And so I didn't even want to, you know, like stand any longer to explain myself to them was really uh, neither here nor there. I mean, I'm happy I escaped it without getting credit with, you know, a beating that they, that, that it happened a few times, even just walking around. I didn't notice, I didn't notice people at that point getting hit with police clubs, uh, being tackled by officers and things like that um, at that point in the night. Now, did you follow the crowd as it went from the Wabash uh, Bridge through uh, past Michigan going east to Lakeshore Drive? Did you actually make your way to Lakeshore Drive? Yes, I, I, well, I, I was right there walking on Lakeshore Drive with them. And talk about what that was like. So, yeah, at that point, it's uh, this this crowd of, like, you know, more. So I should say at this point that the protest is kind of split. And it happens early on, and it seems like a tactic almost of the police to split up the protest. And I think that's, this is mostly the reason behind the encounter at Wabash Bridge. Um, there, honestly, to me, there doesn't seem to be another real explanation. But the goal of um, pro- splitting up the, this protest, because by that time, it, it's already over 4,000 people. Um, and I think they're trying to make it more manageable and they're using these little tactics that are antagonistic to some degree, but also kind of, they kind of seem to be to split up the protesters. So when we're marching towards Lakeshore Drive, uh, we ended up going all the way up Wacker to Columbus, coming straight down Columbus, going down, it was a, it was, you know, down Randolph towards up to Michigan and then finally up uh, Madison or Monroe. Mm -hmm. And um, we get on Lakeshore Drive that way, and it's this this group is like maybe a thousand, maybe one to even two thousand, but this isn't the entirety of everybody who I was, I know at this point that this this group is dwindled, and that's because some people stayed on that side of uh, Michigan Avenue. They didn't follow the crowd up to Lakeshore Drive, so. There's, there's cars, drive, people in cars driving and honking, holding up their, holding signs from their cars. There's so many people. I mean, people are weary at this point. You can see it in their faces. You can see it in how they're walking, but they're still out here. They're still uh, protesting. Um, they still, the, the, the mission didn't feel accomplished yet. Um, you can really tell for them. And so, Getting on once we got on the Michigan Avenue, I ended up splitting up at, at that point uh, to touch base with my editor, and then I went, and that was maybe around six thirty. And I went back out. It was still it was about seven, and yeah, that that when the protesters finally made it on to Michigan Avenue it was it was an interesting sight because here I am, I'm in the middle of Michigan at this point because I split off pretty much as soon as we got to. Chicago marching down Lakeshore Drive mm-hmm. and I went to the car to stop and you know touch base with my editor and so I'm at about Michigan and Erie I'd say and so I can look to my right uh, and I see this huge crowd of maybe 2,000 protesters marching forward and then to my left is this gathering of you know of riot shield riot you know riot uniform police officers at the near the bridge at, at Michigan Avenue, near the um, bridge right there uh, by the Apple Store and stuff like that, mm-hmm. they're they're standing there with you know like cars lined up in the streets, shielding off, blocking off the street. The bridges are lifted at this point, um, and it's it's like it was just like watching this huge stand, like watching if you ever seen like. Troy, the movie Troy or something, and watching like the two sides on either side of uh, the, the this huge uh, of the magnificent miles, it was just a an interesting sight. It was something like out of a film. Honestly. Yeah. Now, and and they didn't actually, ha- or did they have an encounter? Those two forces. So you have the the the. the so it, it, the marching goes on, and 
the encounter stopped because this is the thing. Protesters aren't really combating the police head on. They're not like attacking police officers, you know. So whenever they would march and they would get face to face, there would be like this screaming match almost and and that would happen every once in a while, but mostly with the protesters stopping, they would stop, they would talk, they would, you know, chant. There was a point in time where speeches were given, uh, a moment of silence was taken. And these are things that would happen when the marching stopped, when it came to a standstill, most often brought on by police blocking off the street that people were trying to march down. Um, so at this time, there wasn't really like, you know, it wasn't a clash as much as it was like they meet, in, they meet at a certain point in the middle and protesters continue on in a different direction. Um, and I think that it was maybe down Ohio Street where they went, where there was a a larger crowd of protesters who, who were pretty much surrounded by police at this point. And now they're setting up their own barricades. Like they're, they're grabbing garbage cans. They're grabbing uh, these, the, the little steel barricades, the steel barricades that police leave out, you know, that you see at festivals or whatever. Those steel barricades that they're grabbing and putting up you know, basically to shield themselves off from police. And over here, they are, there are people on, on motorcycles burning rubber. There are people throwing firecrackers over to police, towards the police. There are police officers spraying people with pepper spray at this point. They are, they've thrown tear gas at this point, at least once, and that I witnessed with my own eyes. Um, and so th- that's where it became kind of combative and, and still, still just looking at it from the outside in. Um, I mean, well, not really outside in because I was there, but, uh, looking at it, it just felt like the police were like this aggressive occupying presence. And the protest at this point has turned into like a, I don't, I don't know if anarchical is the best way of, to describe it, but it's just this, there's just noise and there's just energy and it's it's hyperactive, and there's anger being expressed in all these different ways. There's, there's burning of the rubber by by uh, motorcyclists. There's you know steel cars honking. There's you know people riding down up and down the street past the police officers on the on their ATVs, and there's a guy downtown on a horse leading people around, like, leading protesters around marching. Um, And this is, I mean, it sounds, just describing it right now and listening to myself describe it, it sounds surreal. Wait, go uh, go back to the man on the horse. (laughs) There's a guy on a horse, yeah. A man on a horse who's not a police officer. Am I correct? No, okay. no. Talk about no. Yeah, uh, this is a black man. Uh, he has been spotted on this horse actually a couple of times, at least in the year. I've seen videos on Twitter of people like, you know, just, they'd be driving down the street and they pull up next to the guy on the horse at the red light, you know. And they, they so I've seen video. I've seen. I've heard a tale of this man. Um, and so to see him with my own two eyes, he's, he's on the horse. Uh, he, I, I mean, it's his horse, apparently. Um, he is dressed in like this, uh, put this chest shield, like, a almost like what a, a like a football player's like, you know, chest pad almost. Um, and he's leading people. Yeah. He's leading people on his horse towards. Uh, back they ended up going back towards LaSalle because uh, at this point this is where all the bridges are up except LaSalle and so these protesters were somewhere around near like Ohio and LaSalle um, and he starts leading people like back up LaSalle towards the bridge and they end up back across the bridge um, and at this point this is where the protest has really turned into very scattered events around downtown. Um, you still have people near Trump Tower. Excuse me. 
you still have people around Trump Tower that are basically in a standoff with police. You still have people up and down Michigan Avenue that are looting things, looting stores, and uh, there's still people up and down State Street doing the same thing. Um, there are pro- and then there's this group of protesters over here where I'm at uh, following this guy on the horse. Uh, and it is... It was uh, really to be able to write about it, to, to be able to 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 put a word written word to it was the best way I think I'd ever be able to describe it, and uh, luckily I was able to do that for the tribe and get the account. You know, it, it just was it's just hard to really put into words what what I saw. What I mean, and it and it lasted until, but honestly, well past me being out there because after even after I. I went home when I called at night. It was maybe around ten thirty uh, when I finally got to my car to leave out of downtown. Uh, and I st- there was still a photographer on the ground working with us. Uh, Darius, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his last Darius Rovell, but uh, his name he's a photographer for us. Darius is out there on the ground and. Um, he stays out to like 1 a.m. Uh, he ended up having to take a ride a bike, a rent a Diddy bike and ride it home, following the brown line home. He stays uh, kind of north, I believe. So, yeah, it, it it only escalated, I think, even after I left, because that was when things really devolved into looting and stuff like that, and it was most protesters had left. All right, now let's, <clears throat> let's talk about the decision uh, to raise the bridges, uh, and impose a curfew, and shut off the CTA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I try to keep. Uh, it's it's very easy for me, Matt, to just see the the bizarre surreal comedy in Chicago because yeah. I've been living here and writing about it for so long. Just the guy on the horse is yeah. surreal, by the way. Just want to yeah. share that with you. And then I'd heard this. Somebody told me that somebody stole a police horse. They that may. <laughs> I was trying to imagine that, like stealing a police horse. I don't know if that actually happened or if that was a. a, a no, you know, no, look, I know I saw one horse being ridden. I don't even know if I saw a police horse down there, but the horse, only horse I remember was uh, mounted by a guy who. Uh, with the with the chest pad on chest pad okay so so i saw this on facebook and you know about so what okay so two points they lift the bridges they say there's a curfew you got to leave the loop so instead of just enabling people to leave the loop they make it harder to leave the loop they lift the bridges and they cut off the trains so um, yeah i'm just thinking well if you want people to leave the loop or the downtown area, whatever you want to call it. Why are you making it harder for them to get yeah. out? Help me with this. What do you think was going yeah, on? Yeah, making it. I mean, I think that the attempts that they made to disperse the protests. I think this is the instance of how those things came back to haunt them. Their goal of trying to make this thing more manageable. At least that's what it seemed like. Watching like being on the ground watching police cars lead protesters away from each other, basically um, cutting people off at different, you know, intersections, like watching that happen and watching this protest disperse mm-hmm. made this a thing where now people own every side, every part of downtown. And now you have gotten to the, like things have gotten uh, so intense to the point where you want to impose a curfew, which uh, was something that, they had said that they weren't going to do, uh, the, the mayor had said they weren't going to do, they had no intention of doing. They end up going back on their word with that and imposing a curfew after you've done all this work to separate these people. And so now, while the bridges are up because you were trying to keep people away from Michigan Avenue, now those people are stuck somewhere where they're going to, like, they're just going to be outside longer than they ever would have been probably yeah. because like myself, I had to walk what was basically, I, I want to say a 45 minute walk 
avoiding the different police roadblocks to get back to my, where I was parked at. So you, it was like you were said, and I almost ended. And like I said, I was in an encounter where it very well could have ended in me being arrested for curfew. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you set all these people up for failure at this point. And this is when the arrest numbers really start to skyrocket. Because even being out there, you know, you you see you're seeing people get arrested, but it isn't to the scale that it ended up being. Like just seeing what I saw. There was no way I, was gonna, I could have guessed that like uh, um, 200 arrests, was it? Or maybe 2,000? I, I'm, I, that's a huge difference, but I know it's two something. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a bad journalist right now even <laughs> quoting that number. Yeah. But it's in the story. Yeah. If you read my story in the trial, the number's quoted exactly. But the arrest numbers skyrocket after that curfew, in effect, because you, you find out later on that most people who are arrested are arrested for curfew violations. Um, And so you basically set these people up for failure. Now you have people like Darius who was in a situation where normally we're taking the CTA home are, you know, forced to try and win baby bikes or find other ways home. You know, there are some people who are generous enough to lend their car space. Uh, That ended up happening a few times I heard about on social media or lend their home space downtown. But, uh, yeah, so for the most part, you have a lot of people that were just shot down there doomed to get arrested, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's honestly kind of, uh, it's illustrative, it's an illustration of just how Chicago is in general with segregation. Um, even looking at the roadblocks that have been placed on streets since then, uh, basically keeping everyone out of the loop, but, and every and honestly, everyone out of up north, it was so easy for me to get back south, but so difficult to get anywhere north uh, when it came to navigating the city for the past week. Um, so yeah, it was just interesting to to watch that segregation basically be, you know, it's it's being exacerbated at this point by the city, by the police. Um, and it's all in the means of trying to protect Chicago somehow. Uh, even though, honestly, due to those roadblocks, you probably had more looting in Chicago, Chicago's other neighborhoods than you would have even seen had those roadblocks not been put in place. But um, Well, that, is actually, that has actually been uh, a topic of much debate and conversation in the city, uh, as you know, yeah. uh, in the last week or so. Uh, were, yeah. Was the impact, whether it was intended or not, uh, of the uh, the mayor's strategy and the police strategy uh, to to cut off the loop, cut off the downtown area uh, from protesters? Did that that lead to um, looting and uh, unrest in uh, South Side and uh, near West Side and uh, near South Side neighborhoods? What's your opinion about yeah. this? I mean, I think that there's no doubt about it because for the most part, these places, these things that people are looting, these, you know, their, their biggest, you know, stores or whatever are downtown. Like people are looting Best Buys and other neighborhoods and then, you know, the biggest Best Buy is, you know, right there uh, on Canal and what's what I want to say. Like, there are people, like these central areas are where people from anywhere are, you know, it's easier to get to. And these looters are just people from anywhere. These aren't some like some some group of people that that have this secret layer somewhere that came out from underground to loot things. These are just people. These are these are neighbors. These are people that live in neighborhoods in Chicago who probably would have gone to a central area rather than stay in the area they were because that's what they did the first night of any looting. Mm-hmm. And it went on for the most part because there was this restriction. And this isn't, you know, me defending the looting. I, I mean, I understand that it, it, it wasn't a good look 
but listen, that's honestly the last thing on my mind at this point. Uh, the the stores being looted are are not what's important here. What's important here is the message that protesters are trying to get off. So restricting that in the name of trying to stop looting, which didn't even really happen, really all you did was spread the looting. Uh, it was like a it's a lose lose situation for the really the city of Chicago's image here. Because you look bad for doing something that causes the spread of looting into these smaller neighborhoods and smaller communities, uh, that ends up escalating. Um, and then you have the, um, the whole issue of stopping protesters from exercising their right to, to assemble the protest in a place where it is probably the most effective to do, to do it downtown in the center of everything, the center of attention in the city. Mm-hmm and a center where people from all sides of the city are able to get together. Um, but yeah, it, it, it ends up escalating to, you know, what we end up seeing on, you know, Monday night, Tuesday, uh, violence beyond just the protests. Uh, and, uh, so were you out in the streets on Sunday as well? You talked about Saturday. You were, did you go back on Sunday? Yeah, Sunday was, uh, it was, calling it quieter is, is an interesting way to put it, but I I mean, that's the way I've described it most of the time. Mm-hmm. The Only because the crowd is definitely smaller. It's definitely a way smaller group of protesters. Um, at, at its peak, it's maybe, I'd say like 500 to, you know, maybe 800 max protesters and they're all in this central area downtown this is just downtown i'm speaking of because at this point on sunday there are protests in other neighborhoods and other areas uh going on there's different they're organized at high park uh and on the north side and and uptown so like it spread the protests have spread so downtown though uh, like I said, the police are like really heavily guarding Trump Tower even more than they were honestly the day before. Uh, there's, you know, riot, riot uh, CPD police uh, officers, and then there's the riot equipped state police officers now that are also protecting Trump Tower. Um, and still, all the bridges are up. And now this group of protesters is around the same area where they were, like around that Ohio LaSalle area. Um, they end up clashing with police near LaSalle. You know, it starts off on the bridge, LaSalle. It goes uh, back north, on this, you know, towards, towards uh, Magnificent Mile on LaSalle Street. Um, and they end up clashing with police, and this is where more than any other time that I've seen since being out there, uh, that it really gets violent, and the police straight up start hit, like beating protesters with clubs. Uh, I saw a few people get pepper sprayed. I bought milk down there for myself. I ended up lending it to uh, a guy down there who ended up getting pepper sprayed by the police. Uh, to pour in his eyes, um, and so yeah, it it got really rough out there. Even though it was a smaller group, um, and these were mostly bike cops. Uh, like these are officers that are straight up like as a group of maybe like fifty officers on bikes that are blocking off protesters. Um, and there, I think I, I don't remember how the 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 scuffle really started per se, but what it appeared to be. Uh, You know, I I was a few feet away from what actually happened, so I couldn't hear words being exchanged. What it looked like was a guy trying to go into a building that was past where the police were barricading. Um, And it looked like that because there was a guy who was already in the building holding the door open as if to allow the person inside. Um, And the police wouldn't let them pass, and they tried to keep going past and when that happened, like the police, you know, hauled off on people protesting that, that general vicinity who were trying to help that guy get past. 
Um, and they, you know, started hitting people with batons, started pepper spraying people, and uh, it de-escalated after that. Mostly the protesters ended up retreat- retreating. And uh, I'd say after that, like around, and that happened at around eight o'clock, I want to say, but then things started to get quiet around there. Mm-hmm. And downtown was pretty empty, but like I said, protests are still going on in like Hyde Park, where a lot of people were arrested. Um, so yeah, it, it, even though it died down in the center of the city, uh, in terms of size, it, it didn't shrink it, it to any degree in terms of uh, the awareness of the actual activity in the entire city. And then uh, I believe you were, you told me uh, your third night of protesting or third day of protesting, you went to Uptown on the north side of Chicago. Do I have that correct? Exactly, yeah. Um, I was uh, actually contacted about this protest by somebody who, uh, she, she she was helping to organize the protest and she wanted me to join her because I went to Stewart School. They planned on marching from Belmont uh, train station to Stewart School Lofts. Uh, and she wanted me to, to actually to speak at the protest. I wasn't able to make it to that because of uh, working uh, all day. Um, but I got there a little later after that had happened. And, you know, people had been posting all day about these peaceful protests uh, outside of uh, Stewart School Walks. And uh, when you get, when I get over there, like, at this point, things have kind of, like, there's still definitely protests going on. There's still protesters active in that area. But the police are standing over, like, it really feels like an occupying force. Like, going down there, being down there in Uptown and driving around and seeing these groups of, like, you know, 10, 20 police officers on different corners, you know, just stay, set up shop on different corners, like basically police in the neighborhood. Uh, like no, you know, you couldn't really walk down the street without being approached. Uh, even driving down the street when I was driving, uh, so I was driving to go get gas and they were like, they stopped me at a, at a corner at a stoplight to ask me where I was headed to you know, like it was like a, you know, like almost like I needed a pass, a pass card to, you know, navigate the neighborhood. But uh, yeah, it, it and, and this is something that started out very peaceful by all, you know, by all accounts. Um, and so I don't know, it, it just feels like even in these cases where the protests begin peacefully, there is no real indication that the the that the police are out there for any other reason than to provoke people than to kind of like instigate mm-hmm. protests instigate you know these 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 standoffs or protesters and all I'm seeing with all these days are, are, pro- are, are police taking a stand that like Cuts off, they're cutting off marching routes. They're, you know, in people's faces. They're making people do things that they wouldn't necessarily, like, that don't really make sense, like drop bags that they have, you know, like, like they did with me. You know, they're doing things like that, like these small, petty things that I'm, I'm witnessing that only serve to make people more upset. And these people are already upset. These people are already out here angry for a reason. Um, so giving these people another reason besides the deaths of the murders of innocent people, um, it, it feels like a, it's just like a recipe for disaster. So it, it's been hard wrapping my head around really the, the city's, uh, the city's response to these things and how they plan to deal with things. It just, the the path seems unclear to me at this point. Yeah, no, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, Troy LaRavier said much the same. The, the, the rhyme or reason behind the uh, tactics that the police employed uh, does not suggest sort of like a governing principle that's logical. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's just it's like, it's almost, it's, it's, it's almost as though... Uh, 
Well, the, the Chicago has such a, oh, you don't want me to go here, uh, Matt, but Chicago has such a tribal mentality. You, you grew up here, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm not yeah. from Chicago, but I've uh, lived here for so long, I've seen it. And it's like, oh, yeah. we'll show you. Everybody's tougher than everybody else. Everybody's always going to show yeah. how tough they are. So now the police are going to show the world how tough they are. Uh, it's almost like that. And um, yeah. what what over writing purpose it serves i do not know other than to me the only thing i could see they did successfully was protect trump tower so yeah they didn't yeah do, they did a decent job with that they didn't do much for nike they didn't do much for apple they didn't do much for uh neiman marcus no. macy's yeah not. but trump tower got protected uh yeah and they risked life and limb for that one now let me. I'm going to point out something. Moving away from the specifics of uh, George Floyd and police, the, the reason Stewart School is so symbolic, in my humble opinion, is that it it it's, it's sort of the epitome of development deals that went down uh, under the last mayor, Mayor Rahm. This is me talking, Matt. So I'm just going to get this off yeah. my chest. And Mayor Rahm, in his infinite wisdom, decided it was a good idea to close 50 odd schools throughout the city of Chicago back in 2015. 14, I want to say. Uh, 2013. 2013, okay. Uh, yeah. And he closed a couple schools. Most of the schools were in the south or west sides, but he apparently felt compelled that well, if you're going to close schools in the south and the west side, you got to close a few on the north side just to show that you're not picking favors. So he closed Stewart yeah. School. Um, and uh, he closed Stewart School. And and then not most of the schools in the south and west side are, are still vacant, boarded up. But Stewart schools in Uptown, which is a gentrifying area, and so they turned it into lofts. And as such, it becomes a symbol of like Chicago's planning attitudes. You close yeah. schools and open upscale lofts. Yeah, uh, not, yeah, it's true. It's never well, sat well with me. Uh, so I can understand why they'd have a march. Uh, that would uh, culminate in Stewart. We'll close with this, uh, Matt. You, if you don't have friends uh, who are currently Chicago police officers, I'm sure there's uh, young men that you grew up with and young women too who are close to becoming Chicago police. Oh, officers. I, yeah, I know a couple that have actually yes become officers. So, do you have like what's your what's your view of? your Chicago police officer, your friends that you grew up with who become police officers and, you know, has that, do you still accept them as your friends? Is there a rift there now? So, so, I mean, personally, I, I feel like there's uh, definitely a disconnect with the relationship at that point. Um, Because one thing I've always felt and and people like will say this a lot of times, I'm like, you know, how come we can't be get along just because we don't agree on something, you know? And like, personally, I feel like, yeah, that's all fine when the disagreement is over, like what's better McDonald's or Wendy's or like, you know, even steak well done versus medium rare. Yeah. Those disagreements are fine. We can have those disagreements, but when the disagreement and the, the disconnect is about, you know, whose life we value, when the disagreement is about like, you know, whether Donald Trump is a good president or whether like those types of disagreements to me, political ones, ones that really say something about what you believe in, like what you think is okay. Uh, those things are, are irredeemable to me. And I personally feel like um, police, like, being a police officer, you become complicit in whatever it is that police do because you go into the engagement knowing of the police's history. You know that, that you know about you know Home and Square. You know about uh, the murder of Fred Hampton. You know about these this this history that police has have that has not been kind to people of color in this country and especially black people. You just have, you, you, you know this history at this point. And so to go into something, knowing that history and, you know, not being willing to, to that not being a deal breaker for you is enough to me to say that we can't really be friends. We can't 
we can't get along because I can never see myself, you know, sitting and, you know, having a real connection with somebody who thinks that whatever the police are doing is okay or or is even willing to follow the types of orders that we've seen handed down uh, for police to do. For people that, that like, are, are even abusing, excuse me, that are abusing their power as policemen. Like, to be able to call those people your coworkers and be comfortable calling those people your coworkers to me is, is just agrees is enough to, to, you know, warrant the ending of a relationship. And, you know, that's, that's my personal mm-hmm. belief on the matter. Um, I can, I told my girlfriend once she joked about going to the, the academy and I said, like, we, you know, we'd have to end it if <laughs> that was the case. Okay, deal because, <laughs> you know, I just could I, yeah, I couldn't. I really feel that way. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I hear you. I, I have a lot of dear friends who are police officers and uh, I know they're good people. But uh, I also know that they look away a a lot of things that they see and they just choose not to uh, take a stand. And I also want to give a shout out to uh, Pat Hill, uh, who she passed on. She was a police officer for many years and she was uh, an activist and Mm -hmm. uh, spoke out against police brutality and was a a real rabble rouser and a troublemaker and as such. I loved her dearly. And uh, so yeah. there are good police officers. And in fact, in the Troy interview, which I urge everybody to check out after they've done listening to Matt, uh, he talks about two contrasting police officers uh, in the lockup where he was, Matt. One was a young black man who was very conciliatory uh, and very respectful and went out of his way to be compassionate to, I think it was like uh, 30 people locked up in this cell. And, uh, and then there was this exceedingly abusive uh, police officer who came on afterwards and was cursing people mm. out and was just really insulting. Uh, I just, the Chicago Police Department has to figure out a way to sort of weed out the latter and promote the former. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and just to add to that real quick, when, having gone to school at Whitney Young and being across the street from the police academy, I believe a start to that would be requiring them to maybe go undergo more than six months of training or, you know, like less than a, a, a in the time that they're trying to do everything that police officer has to do, I've finished one year of algebra. And I think that maybe we should reevaluate that. That is uh, well put. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I hope you pass that algebra course. Oh yeah, you know I I I, I got that one done. Okay. I got that one. Done. I couldn't go. I couldn't be out here failing everything. I had to keep the limit to one F to be able to stay on the court. Okay, well that's because those insane <laughs> coaches, the Froshoff coaches, didn't have six a.m. practices. All right. Okay. Now, yeah. now we cl- come full circle on our conversation, and it's a good uh, time just to wrap it up. Uh, Matt Harvey, you could read his uh, stuff at the Tribe. Uh, and uh, you could also see his articles in the rear. I believe you wrote an article about Stewart School, something we have in common. Yeah. We've each written yeah. articles about Stewart School. Uh, yeah. It's a real pleasure having you on the show, Matt. I'm going to bring you back uh, regularly to talk about politics, sports, everything under the sun. You up for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, you got my number. I got your number. Always. All right. That's Matt Harvey. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H 2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place. 
to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.